สัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะนะโมทัสสะบาคะวะโทอะระหะโทสัมมาสัมพุทธัสสะอะปารุธาเดสังมัทธัสสะทาวะระเยโสตวันธาบะมุญชันทุสะ
uh, country, and we might uh, not we might see th see things in terms of our own ways we grasp history. You know, though we we think of an ancient time, and then even uh, you know, like the 1800s can seem like ancient history. 1900s now, or ancient history for some. <laughs> They're in, in the 20-hundreds. But it's, uh, you know, the, the various, in the traditional forms it's supposed to be, uh, it's, its lifespan supposed to be 5,000 years. So, so this is, uh, you know, over halfway through that span. And it's very interesting when at the at the two thousand five hundredth year, which was nineteen fifty six I believe uh, that was the year many of us became Buddhists you know not not because of uh, I knew anything about the, the the span of Buddhism or anything it just happened the English Sangha Trust it was established in that year here in England actually the the trust or the organization that invited me to to the UK and uh, so uh, Ajahn Amaro he told me he was born in that year <laughs> and so I've noticed that you know in this past uh, those 40 uh, Fifty years almost that have passed, uh, there's been such a, a noticeable increase of interest in Buddhism in in the part of the world where there never seemed to be any interest at all. Birth then is you know just contemplating birth as uh, you know at this moment we're sitting here. And uh, I can't remember my birth, you know, physical birth. I have no memory. I've tried, you know, say sometimes you can remember your birth experience, but uh, so far it's never come into my my consciousness. And then uh, death is um, physical death is in the future, and enlightenment is now. So it's always this pointing to the now uh, that uh, is the essence of Buddhism, of the Buddhist teaching. Awake now. Pay attention now. Now when you think of yourself as a, as a person that was born, and just notice how, how you regard yourself on, on a personal level. Uh, and, you, you know, I was born in... Uh, such and such a place, and my parents are named this and that, and then uh, I grew up and so forth. And then uh, we we have a way of you know our way we see ourselves as a as a historical person. So this, of course, is conditioning of the mind, the way you know the attachment to memory or the views and the concepts that we hold and how we see ourselves in terms of if I was going to write my biography, my autobiography, 
you know, what would I, uh, you know, I'd, I'd have to tell where I was born, what time of the day, and on and on like that, trace it from, from that beginning, which I don't remember. But I do remember the early years of childhood, about three or four, and uh, some, some memories I do have of the, say that very, the very first, you know, those beginning years of life, where the sense of yourself starts, starts developing. Then in, uh, by the time I became a Buddhist, became interested in Buddhism, I was about 21, so then I'd, I'd al- my personality was already formed. Uh, you know, I was no longer an innocent child. Uh, the innocent years of my life had been lost and I became a, a uh, kind of adult uh, being who still had, uh, who had a lot of uh, anxieties and negative mental states about myself as a person, about my future. And so the, the attraction to Buddhism, of course, was the fact that it seemed to, to provide uh, some kind of way of looking at oneself that was different, you know, different from the way I had been uh, conditioned to think and conceive myself and the world around me. So being brought up as a Christian, I was brought up in a very uh, devout Christian family. There's a sense of being a sinner, someone who, who, G, who God uh, sacrificed his son to save. So I had that, that kind of, this was a kind of cultural conditioning, religious conditioning that I, that I had uh, from childhood. But something in me, as I became, uh, as I entered my teenage years, began to question this. In my innocent years, there was no, you know, I just accepted that. There was not something that I doubted or questioned. I just, if this is what the priest says and parents say, then it must be true. There was no, you know, I was willing to go along with it. Then in terms of uh, when you get to the age where your doubting mind starts taking over and you start questioning, and I didn't, I couldn't really relate to that. I couldn't, uh, I couldn't. Something in me just couldn't uh, see the point of it or appreciate it when I really looked at it in terms of of what that meant to me. It didn't didn't mean anything to me. So then the interest in Buddhism arose because it was was not asking me believe in, in anything, but to uh, it, it allows you to question and doubt and, and uh, investigate experience. And this, of course, is why why I became interested in and uh, fascinated with the teaching of the Lord Buddha. Now, 
birth then is the beginning of something. So the, that the actual body was born, uh, you know. So I can I can easily believe that because this is the result of birth. Uh, and, you know, I'm sitting here, and so the birth is is something I don't remember. But from this point, this moment here and now that I'm sitting here on this on this uh, high seat is, uh, you know, is the result of having been born. And, uh, and so that's such an obvious fact that, that sometimes we don't really, uh, you know, reflect on that, on the reality of that. Then uh, death is, uh, is uh, in the future. It's getting closer and closer. As you get older, you feel more the, the uh, presence uh, the, the, the of death is, is the, even though death is possible for any of us at any time, you know, whether you, how young you are or old you are, but, but uh, old age does uh, make it more present, possibility. You don't know when. They're like you know, the news I received last week of the Venerable Raymond Dhamma dying. Uh, the, the Burmese uh, Mahatera, who has a uh, Buddhist center in Birmingham, he was 75, and uh, and he just suddenly died in his sleep. You know, there was no kind of uh, hospitalization or even symptoms or signs. Uh, uh, that he would die, and yet in the morning they went into his room, and, and there he was, lying on his side, smiling, <laughs> but dead. <laughs> so it must have been a very nice death. <laughs> so on Friday they're having a funeral, for him uh, in Birmingham, which many of us are going to, because he was one of the uh, Mahateras of the of uh, the UK, and uh, he's also a very helpful and good friend to all of us here, and uh, was always uh, supportive and encouraging to me personally as in my life here in in England. So we recognize that suddenly what is that, you know, the, co the perception of Venerable Revita Dhamma is different, isn't it? When, when you think of Venerable Revita Dhamma in Birmingham as alive and then as dead. You know, so I reflect on that, just the, the difference that the, just that one word make, uh, gives to the kind of feeling of the mind when you perceive someone as alive and when you perceive them as dead. And of course death is, is uh, the end of what was born, the physical body. That's its nature, to be born, grow up, get old and die. And then I know that death, you know, the physical death of my body I don't know what that's going to be like, you know, in terms because it hasn't happened yet, and so, though the death right now for me is 
is like not knowing in my mind goes quite blank. You know, I could start speculating about what happens after death or Buddhist theories about afterlife or whatever, but that's, the, that's speculating or theorizing or, or about what possibly might happen, not through direct knowing of physically dying. So this is what I'm pointing to, is that I don't know. The not knowing is like this. It's still something I will know when it happens. But at this moment, the, the enlightened moment, is where one can really uh, awaken to the fact that you don't know. At this moment, the perception of death in the future. There's a, a knowing of not knowing. Like right now, and I think of Dr. Revatadama is dead. Is a, it's a kind of final, like it, it, gives a, it has a finality to it. But I don't know what it is. Where if, if I still assumed he was alive, then I think, well, I must go visit Dr. Revatadama sometime. <laughs> or, you know, assume, you assume all kinds of things that, that you can easily relate to in your own life, like, like he's uh, living in his temple in Birmingham, he's uh, breathing, he's uh, going to pujas, he's speaking Burmese language, or he's teaching Abhidhamma, or things like this. One can, can kind of, uh, you, know, you know, imagine. Because these are all things that we experience, you know, we... We, we can, you know, our own experience of life it has these possibilities, these, these opportunities. But death... And then we think of the, the Lord Buddha. Now, in, in they, they, use the, they usually the, use the word parinibbana, the, which is, uh, you know, rather than saying the Buddha died, they say he he reached parinibbana, and then that makes it that softens the sh the shock, doesn't it? <coughs> but what does that mean? You know, in terms of of uh, the word death, of course, it's an English word, and it uh, and it has its own effect on on our mind. Parinibbana, for most of you, wouldn't mean very much. It's a, it's a rather pleasant-sounding word, in fact, parinibbana. <laughs> so, uh, but it, it may be a special kind of death only Buddhists have. <coughs> or, you know, how we can, can make it, try to define it and then understand it through definition. But in terms of reflection, we're not, we're, it's not important to, to define, but to recognize. And so, when somebody dies, somebody we know, especially when somebody we know dies, like I knew our Venerable Revadadhamma. Also, uh, several months ago, a good friend, uh, Kalyani Catherine Hewitt died, who was a friend of mine from ever since I came to England. And she was 80 years old, was one of the 
Buddhists that I first met when I came to to uh, live here. And so, you know, when the, the, the people you know die, then people you don't know die. Like, you know, you listen to the news and you hear how they report the death of Americans and British in Iraq. And then they say, well, some Iraqis also. <laughs> or in, in the Palestine, isn't it? Uh, three or four Israelis died in a battle, and then there's so many Palestinians, they don't seem to get numbered, they don't seem to count so much. They're like Iraqis, you know, that I've never been to Iraq, and so I don't, I've never, I, I don't think I've ever met an Iraqi anyway, but um, anyway, that's, it, it, that doesn't mean so much to us, except I always feel this this sense of of sadness and and kind of shame in a way how we regard our own as so important and and somehow the others as less less important because they're not ours like I can relate to both American and British because I I've lived here for so long and I'm a, an American so you know I have kind of first-hand experience. But in places where I don't know anybody and they're, they're all different and you only hear things about them, oftentimes propaganda and whatnot. But yet in terms of birth and death, and we're all related in that. Our humanity is the same. And that it's uh, whether you're uh, an Iraqi or Palestinian, Israeli or or American or British, whatever it's, we share this as a common human experience. We share uh, old age sickness. With, you know, these are common to all ec- experience of hum- humanity, from the, you know, from the first ones to the present. We share grief and and sorrow disappointment and uh, sep- loss of the loved and, and pain, physical pain and, and uh, frustration and anger and greed and all these, these are common to all of us as human beings everywhere. No matter what religion or what class or race or anything. So it's when, we, when we reflect in this way, isn't it, we, we feel connected on a, on to to humanity in general, at least I do. You know, is, is my life or life of uh, a British person more important than an Iraqi? I don't know. Now, on the level of humanity, I don't see where where one human life is more, you know, is is somehow important and uh, and another's isn't. Whether they're, you know, beggars on the street or or, you know, trashy people, or high-ranking people, kings, queens, presidents, or nobody. You know, it's a, we're not talking about the status or the nationality, but the, the common humanity. So this is where 
the Buddhist Buddha placed his emphasis was on this, the common humanity we share. So in Thailand, sometimes monks will address a crowd of people. They'll say, brothers and sisters in old age, sickness, birth, old age, sickness, and death, which I always like. Because it, it, it brings us all in, you know, as if we're all a part of this. It's a connecting us all as in our humanity. And, and we're not saying, you know, it's not directed towards the, the uh, upper classes or the, the nice clean people, the good people or the uh, proper ones, but to, to all, human, all human beings we share this. We share the experience of birth and death with uh, all creatures. When we, when we contemplate more and more, then we, we feel more compassion, more interest in, in, and respect for the life of, say, the animal kingdom rather than just seeing that they're somehow lesser and uh, are their lives aren't very important uh, or as important as ours. Of course, the important life for each one of us is our own, because this is what we're experiencing. <laughs> you know, so on the level of altruism or reflection, we, can, we recognize the that on, on this on this way of reflecting on the common humanity we share with all human beings existing at this moment on this planet, or with all human beings that we ever heard of, whether it's from the Lord Buddha, Jesus Christ, or Mohammed, or Napoleon, or whoever, it's uh, we recognize this. Uh, as something we hold in common. So in the enlightened teaching the Buddha gave, this was a teaching for enlightenment in itself. It's just a pointer, you know, it's pointing at the present. The Four Noble Truths are all about now. They're not about stages uh, of, uh, that you, you have in time. And it's pointing to the common experiences of dukkha. So it's it's bringing, uh, even pointing to that common bond of humanity, isn't it, that, that we all experience, the most common, ordinary human experience. And there's no human being exempt from it. I don't know any human being that's never suffered. <coughs> so, this is, uh, this is a way of reflecting on this, of awakening in the present, this, this way of seeing things as they are. So the word enlightenment, of course, is another um, highfalutin word. It sounds really fantastic to me. You know, like, wow, who's enlightened? You know, is there an, I, I want to go, is the Dalai Lama enlightened? Uh, people ask me, was Ajahn Chah an enlightened master? And we speculate, you know, with our uh, thinking minds about, you know, there must be, maybe Ajahn Man was a kind of super bhikkhu, special, you know, because, uh, you know, he, when you die, of course, you, you have this apotheosis. When you're dead, you, then you, then uh, 
you know, you're up in the stars. You're placed up in the sky. So none of none of us ever ever knew Ajahn Man. But we don't know him as as a kind of through human experience, like seeing him breathing and and eating food and so forth. So it's easy to to just assume all all kinds of Ajahn Man was a very special kind of human being. Because in terms of uh, of our tradition is that he's raised up high as an exemplary historical reference. Now Ajahn Chah is in that position. You know, he's he's up in the sky with the stars. And uh, now this is, I mean, but yet some of us knew Ajahn Chah personally. You know, he's someone I knew, lived with for ten years, and so you know, I have. I have memories of him, of his humanity, where he wasn't, just, you know, up in the sky in the stars, but you know, breathing, eating food. <laughs> and then, when he, during his uh, uh, illness, having to take care of him, his bodily functions and so forth, he was, he was, uh, you know, uh, unable to to speak or or move himself. So the monks around him had to nurse him, had to take care of him. So would an enlightened master have a stroke? (laughs) And then we can speculate about that. Or, uh, you know, many people, you know, in Thailand at the time were lost faith because uh, they, you know, they felt well. If he were an, an arahant, this wouldn't couldn't have happened to an arahant because they they take these words and they they give them such a a high special place in their mind. They become they come more than than anything else. If you look up too high, you know, then you you know you can't like the stars are too far away from us. We can admire them at a distance. But in terms of here and now, this is, this is uh, you know, the body's here and now, breathing. This body here, breathing. It, it feels, you know, what, it, what it's feeling right now. It, it gets hungry, it gets hot, too hot, too cold, gets tired, it gets ill, gets fevers. Uh, so forth, and so this bringing attention, this awakening to the way it is, is is uh, to me what enlightenment is all about: seeing things in the right way, like in light. When you have, when you shine the light in the dark, isn't it? I mean the the darkness goes away, and you can see what's in, what's in the room. But uh, when there's no light, you can't see. You can only. You know, I remember I was sitting in a one night in Thailand in a kuti, you know, and it was pitch black, no moon, and uh, couldn't see anything. Put my hand up in front. I couldn't even see my own hand in the dark. And then, and I couldn't see the corners of the kuti or anything. And then, and so then I started imagining, what is 
what is in this kuti? And then the mind could imagine, and, you know, the, you'd hear a noise, or you'd hear the wind blowing, or rustle of leaves, or you know, you know some some strange sound, and you you start: is it a ghost, or is it a is it a a, a tiger or a <laughs> snake? You know, the, or something like that, and the mind could course, fantasize, and then you light the candle, and you can see. So, if the light's too bright, you go blind. You know, like somebody takes a a picture of you, and the and the flash is so bright, you know, and it goes in your eyes, you can't see anything. But if the light is just right, then you can see very well. You can see everything as it is. So in terms of like our conscious experience in this present moment, this awakened state, then it's it's like that amount of light that you can see things. You can see in this proper way, things the way they are. And so that's seeing it in terms of Dhamma, not in terms of personal preference or personal views and opinions. Enlightenment, in the, in the sense that uh, of, of the Buddha's enlightenment, the Buddha saw things, see, saw as uh, as it really is, so which is then conveyed in his teaching uh, of Dhamma, which is uh, the discerning all conditions are impermanent. It's awakening to the to the reality of this very obvious fact. All that begins, ends, all that is born, dies. It's not, it's not, uh, you know, it's not a, you know, whether it's, we approve, like, dislike, whatever, is not the issue, isn't it? Conditioned phenomena it has many forms, it's from very coarse, gross, to very refined, to sublime, to psychic phenomena, to to uh, you know, change in nature and so forth. That that these uh, different conditions that have that spectrum of coarse to refined, they all operate on that same principle of what arises ceases and nietzsche. Yeah, in vipassana, then we're dis- we're noticing this, even though we might go along with it because it's logical and it seems obvious but but do we really observe it you know so instead of just thinking we understand a nature because we agree with it with the principle of it the discerning is always now isn't it it's not not holding a view about impermanence but of being with impermanence being receptive and and allowing conditioned phenomena whether it's mental, personal, good, bad, or whatever, coarse or refined, to be, to to receive it and know it for what it is. And so, in that that kind of reflection, we're discerning reality, and it's not a matter of of right and wrong, good or bad anymore. It's just where, where this is the, the panya faculty. It's not, not a critical function that we're using. It's a discerning one. 
And so, when th- when th- then we in meditation, when we discern the movement of conditioned phenomena. You know, when I first started meditation, the first few years, my mindfulness was not very all that great. So, um, I usually wasn't aware of anything until it had taken me over. So, somebody made me, got angry about something, then, uh, you know, I couldn't see the birth of anger. I just suddenly realized I was angry. In fact, I remember when I was a layman, I, I'm somebody, you know, said, you're angry. And I said, no, I'm not. I denied it. I didn't even know I was angry when I was obviously angry to everyone around. <laughs> Have you ever done that? <laughs> somebody says, you're angry. I, I'm not angry. How dare you? <laughs> So, you know, as a layman, I was so deluded that I could feel very angry and even not know it. Uh, because, I, you know, as a person, I didn't want to be someone who was angry. I didn't, didn't like being told I was angry. You know, there was conceit and pride and self-view involved. But in, uh, but as I began to, to develop awareness, I began to, Notice uh, when I be, became aware when I, when I did feel anger, and then as I this is just one emotion, but this is quite a strong one, and powerful one. So, so just learning to receive that, which uh, which before was something you know I tended to resist. I tended to either believe and and and. Uh, and in an act or speak in anger, or I'd start repressing it, denying it. But as the the uh, power of mindfulness began to trust in that, then I I found I could actually recognize it. I could feel it in the body, uh, the in the here and now, like this. In that receptive receptivity, then I also began to to, you know, instead of trying to, to get rid of it or to criticize myself for being a- an angry person, I'd, I'd learn to, to receive that and feel it. And then I would see, I would really notice impermanence. It has no kind of, there's nothing to it, uh, you know, that has any permanent core to it. It's, it's a movement, an energy. And then it ceases. So I beca- became aware of the cessation when, when anger was absent, its presence and absence. As the mindfulness connected, as I learned how to, you know, through awareness, sustain awareness, so it wasn't just momentary, then, uh, then I began to be aware of just the when the arising of, the more discerning of the arising, the birth of it, when the conditions for anger are present, that can feel the, the arising. So that, that's the birth and the death 
of an emotion that that you can observe in in terms of awa- through awareness, seeing it in terms of dhamma, conditioned phenomena arising, ceasing, and anatta, because no longer is it so much like my anger when it becomes my anger, my problem, uh, my fault, uh, then it's more than what it is. It, I'm adding something to it that it isn't, that, it, that you know, I'm creating it into some kind of personal uh, condition, which it's not. It is what it is. So seeing in terms of uh, the birth, enlightenment, death, you know, see that this also is, it's not about particularly, you know, some celebration of, of, uh, an, of a wise sage whose death happened 2,500 years ago, but it is, uh, you know, it's about our experience of enlightenment is not something remote and uh, unobtainable. If you, if you, uh, you know, if you recognize what the Buddha is actually pointing to, to this awareness. And in terms of personal ways, the way I hold myself or my personality is conditioned, you know, my my personality is a criti- very critical. I've learned to be critical and, and, and a doubtful, skeptic, and qu- quite cynical person. So, so this uh, personality, uh, you know, if I don't recognize what personality is, then it easily, uh, you know, I easily get caught in my personality it becomes the subject. And I interpret experience through personal preferences, personal attitudes. So what I like and I don't like and I approve of and I don't approve of and, and what I think should be and shouldn't be and my own self, you know, how I see myself, which, is, which tends to be based on uh, criticism. The personality is the one that tends to to uh, criticize. I criticize myself personally. If I give my personality, uh, put that in the in the as the subject of experience, then I'm always frustrated. And I mean, the very few moments you have of bliss and happiness, but so much of life is uh, is is kind of frustrating or. You know, you, if you have a critical mind, you tend to pick up on the bit you don't like, on the, on the, uh, you know, the, the spot on the wall or the fly on the ceiling, <laughs> and uh, you know, and, and focus on, uh, and get obsessed with the, with the negative bit. But in awareness, you know, this is where that which is aware is not personal. 
it's not, I don't create the awareness as a person. I can't claim a, as a person that I'm an aware person. Doesn't make sense. Because as a person, uh, you know, then this, this I'm, you know, I can, I'm, you, know, you have your own view of what, what I'm like as a person. You see my personalities that manifest and, and, you know, toward you. But that's, and, you know, and if I was pointing to myself as a person, then, uh, then I wouldn't be, you know, I'd be duping you, wouldn't I? I'd be saying, you know, you must have faith in me and believe me and, and I'm, you know, an advanced meditator and I'm all this and that. And then, or, you know, however I wanted to describe myself, and you, you just went along with that. Then there'd be no awakening in the present, would there? It'd be merely some of you might, might go along with, with what I say and some of you would resist it and, and so forth. But, so, to me, my personality, I can recognize it and it's, uh, it's part of, you know, how I experience life. But there's an awareness of that personality which increases where the mindfulness connects. You begin to see the personality is arising, ceasing. It changes according to conditions. You know, how, whether I'm a happy person or a sad person or elated or depressed or feeling, uh, you know, vigorous and confident or tired and exhausted, these conditions determine that. You know, what kind of personality I manifest. You can't, I can't, have, I don't, can't find anything in my personality that, that has any stability. It's so dependent and changeable on the conditions, even on the weather. You know, personally I feel very different uh, in the sunshine than in the cold, wet rain. But the awareness is a, you know, that is the constant factor. So this is this is like the enlightenment in the present is learn, is learning to recognize is is recognizing this this marvelous ability. This it's a, you know this this wonderful gift we have as human beings locked into these forms, these very sensitive vulnerable forms of the human bodies and consciousness that we can actually, you know, reflect on it and not be just trapped and bound into the limitations of cultural conditioning, physical, uh, a physical body, um, social attitudes and the, and all the, the, the way, and our, per and the, momentum of our personality and mood. So in, uh, like in Pawana meditation practice, in this learning, recognize, awaken, and cultivate this awareness. It's a, it's a natural state, and it's, the, and it's the, you know, it is the, the jewel in the lotus. It is the, 
you know, it's the, the gate to the deathless. So then in, when we talk about Venerable Revata Dhamma having died, that's a physical body. His body is no longer conscious or breathing. It's probably in the stage of decaying right now, degenerating, going back to the elements. Because that's the natural way of things. But in terms of perception, you know, how Venerable Revata Dhamma's personality, my memories of him, my personal experiences, the way he affected me, uh, and, and so forth, I still have memories and and uh, feelings that come from remembering and remembering him. But in terms of Buddha Dhamma, then there's no, no death really. You know, that's the convention, isn't it? The conventional reality of he died. But Dr. Raymond Dhamma was a meditator, so his, his aim was enlightenment, his goal, his, his uh, reality was through awareness rather than through, you know, proclaiming himself personally as some, uh, in some way and pointing to himself as, uh, as, as somebody real. Now, in each one of us, you know, we're all, like all of you are, you know, right now I can, you know, look at you and receive you in consciousness, but when I go back to my kuti or turn my back, then you're, I can remember you. Memory, isn't it? So, when, we, when we're looking for, you know, demanding things from each other in terms of, of uh, you know, I want you to do what I say or behave yourself or this and that. Then, then I, then I'm, uh, you know, operating from personality <coughs> in awareness. Then, that I can see that, you know, how I, you know, how you know, like or prefer or dislike or. Uh, and that changes, you know, or memories and perceptions of people bring feeling of happiness or anxiety or whatever. But the awareness, notice the awareness is is not a not it's not getting caught up into like or dislike or preference, but recognizing. All that is subject to arising is subject to ceasing. There's not a separate self. There's a memory. I can remember Venerable Raymond Dhamma. That's a memory. As you investigate this more and more, it breaks down the way we hold ourselves and and each other, you know, we begin to, to, uh, you know, because we're we find our our unity in in our, you know, when we recognize our humanity, our common bond of humanity, then we feel compassion 
we have the metta karuna mudita experiences of you know that come out of that wisdom you know, like karuna is understand through understanding suffering we uh, of of humanity of one's own suffering we can we recognize that's a common experience the way i suffer is no different that we all have that when when somebody I love dies, it's like this. Is it lesser or more, you know, in, in an Iraqi or, or whatever? You know, one can speculate. And of course, you know, what affects me, I feel it, where I don't even know one Iraqi, so I can't, you know, speak for them. But to me, the human bond is more important than uh, than any kind of political preferences or ethnic prejudices or anything like that. The common humanity connects me. I feel a sense of compassion for all beings then. Then... Um, in terms of awareness, that's union, that's oneness. So when, when, you know, I used to try to figure out what oneness is. Because he, I used to like read about mystics and experiencing oneness. And then I've had those kind of experiences where there's oneness. And then try to think about them and describe them. And it, and, it, and it, it, the mind just can't conceive oneness. It's some kind of, you know, it's, it's more of an abstraction, you know, in terms of thought. So in terms of this moment, you know, when, when the personality is no longer operating, and no longer the thing that one is attached to, it drops away. The awareness The, the sense of separation and difference no longer, in terms of sense experience, no longer the, you know, how I'm, how I'm, uh, you know, I'm not thinking in terms of separation of you and me and, and all that anymore, but just in awareness. This, this reality of oneness that we, you know, that we, that, you know, is, isn't personal or just, you know, some, some romantic idea. So in that sense, the universe, and we say universe, unity always implies one, whole. So the universe, this oneness, the way, the, the reality of oneness is through awareness. And so this is, you know, for the, to realize this, recognize it through your uh, through your practice of it, of pawana, uh, of recognizing awareness is like this, and tr learning to trust that, and it then it has its its continuity. It's, it has a 
it has a state it's unshakable it doesn't it isn't it isn't uh coming and going like your thoughts or emotions or sensory experiences so offer this as a reflection for this Visakha Puja and I think in